we are living and working in systems that were created for an industrial age where we were making machines and we were treating people like machines. The whole ethos of that time was about control and efficiency, not humanity and adaptivity. And so then what that looks like is how do we get more X with less Y? How do we get this person to work an extra hour for nothing? I don't think that in the micro, people aren't aware they're dealing with humans. But in the macro, the system is not designed around humanity. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing, and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo. And this is The Future of Work. What if the key to a successful work future required a full mindset overhaul by not just company heads, but every position within the workforce? We talk with Rodney Evans of The Ready to discuss the how in creating a work culture that is designed with humans in mind and breaks free from antiquated mindset structures and culture designed for the industrial era. Want to learn more about how to experiment with new models? Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of The Future of Work. I am your host, Salvatrice Kumo, and with me today, I have Rodney Evans, partner at The Ready and the co-host of the Brave New Work podcast. Hi, Rodney. Hey, Salvatrice. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for your willingness to participate. I hear you're in North Carolina. I am Durham, North Carolina. We are transplants from the Northeast and we will never return. What's it like there right now? I mean, here in Cali, the weather is perfect as usual. What's going on over there? <laughs> Groundhog Day. It's very cold for us. My now thin southern blood cannot cope with 40 degree weather. But, you know, there there was a time that I trudged through ice and snow to Wall Street. And now I can't imagine those days. So oh, gosh, it's chilly, no. but it is still beautiful. And, you know, in typical North Carolina, it'll probably be like 75 tomorrow. Nice. 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 <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, one of these days I got to make my way out there because um, I hear such wonderful things about North Carolina and I'm super excited to chat with you about all the great stuff that you're doing with the Ready and the podcast. And so if you don't mind, let's just jump right in. How did you get to your point? What led you to the Ready and your podcast? Yeah, I was on a very traditional path that felt clear 
and expected and laid before me, sort of like rolling, you know, the, the the yellow brick road sort of rolling out ahead. And I was so bummed out about it. I worked for big companies. When I graduated from school, I moved to New York City and I worked for big companies. And I was very focused on ladder climbing and wealth accumulation and sort of the trappings of a corporate lifestyle, in part because that's what I grew up thinking success looked like. And in part, because that's what everybody around me was doing. And in part, because I needed to pay my bills and had loan debt and et cetera. And about 10 years in to that, I was just like, there has to be another way. And and actually, the moment that really changed the trajectory of my life, not just my career, was the idea of a promotion being floated in front of me. So I was working at an investment bank and it became clear that my boss was going to be leaving or going on to another job. And there started to be discussion of me taking that. and And it was like, Um, The dissonance of here's the thing that I've been working for. And also it's just more of the like garbage that I already have. There has to be sort of a third option here led me to quit entirely, travel around the world for a year, start my own company, start to pursue the future of work as my whole, you know, sort of field of study and work with organizations, move out of New York City, get married. Like it really was sort of like looking through the matrix and being like, there are many ways to live a life and I'm going to choose a different one. Certainly. I too had that same similar experience of here's the path. It's all laid out for you. Tackle it one piece at a time. Here's the ladder, right? And success through my lens specifically as a young adult starting my career was just about that, you know? And then Mm -hmm. I think what we're going to discover here in our, in our dialogue is that then we get there and we're saying, Whoa, yeah, (laughs) I didn't subscribe to this toxicity. I didn't subscribe to this type of quality of life and what else is there for me? I mean, you start to see the world through a different lens when it's right in front of you where you're just feeling so, uncomfortable with the company you work with and or the choices you've made in your career. And so it, it leads me to kind of think about or ask you the question of, you know, as you're working with these different companies, why is it important for companies to reimagine and redesign their approach to work? Because mm. in, in academia and in all academia, not just, you know, one particular university or institution versus the other, but there is this tracks, right? Like we just have tracks for everybody to get into their career, into their job. Because it is important for us to ensure that our, that our students get into good paying jobs. Yes, that's valid and that's true, but our companies need to also understand how to receive the new talent Mm -hmm. and what it means to redesign their approach to work. So I'm kind of really curious to hear about why they should, in your opinion. Yeah, it's a great question. To me, the question is, why not? I mean, when one looks around at how it's going, you know, how is it going with big organizations, whether we're looking at universities or governments or the Fortune 500, it's not great. Like, it's not going great. You know, the world around us changes very quickly. The gargantuan sort of calcified bureaucracies that we have created and propped 
up by hook and by crook for 100 years are crumbling. They are not serving any constituent, maybe a stakeholder, maybe a very small population at the top. But for the most part, our systems aren't serving us. And to be honest, you know, I'm in a lot of rooms with a lot of high powered people. A lot of those people share those same frustrations. So to me, it's to me, the motivation to change is like, let's just have a clear eyed look together at what's working and acknowledge the collective myth that we have been buying into. And then let's just knock that off. Like, let's just try something different because this could be because this, you know, education systems, work systems, government systems are failing us. Yeah, they certainly are. And that is a, a mindset shift. Has there been a moment where you worked with an organization, a company, an entity, fill in the blank, that you felt or if you could provide an example, obviously, you know, no names, but an example sure. of where they had to shift, you know, with their mindset so that their culture in the company or in the establishment made for a more welcoming new approach to work. Yeah. What does that look like for an organization? Yeah. It, it always happens. It always happens or it fails. Either the mindset shift takes hold or it doesn't. And funny side note, I was talking to a brand new client yesterday. And mm -hmm. these are very, it's a very large organization, but like a very lovely and progressive group inside of this organization. And I talked to them about a lot of the principles of Brave New Work, about participation, about transparency, around mm -hmm. pushing authority to the edge rather than hoarding it at the top or the center, right. about, you know, and there was a lot of head nodding and a lot of note taking. And at the end, someone asked, not in a gotcha way, but really from a place of curiosity, mm -hmm. what will we have to give up in order to pursue these principles that you're talking about. And I sort of stopped for a second and I was like, you have to give up the worldview you believe in. And uh. I don't know what else to tell you because once <laughs> you've sort of seen through the matrix, then mm -hmm. there's really no going back from it. And so I think there are a couple of things I see in companies. One is it's so easy, whether you're talking about Jedi work or talking about new ways of working or ways of using technology or becoming digital first or doing, you know, adaptive budgeting, whatever the thing is you're talking about, it is so easy to stay at a principles level and be like, we believe in transparency. We believe in autonomy. We believe in participation. Cool. Is compensation transparent? Is a work done in public or is it hoarded in email? Are people mm -hmm. who are impacted by decisions participating in those decisions in a material way? It's the ideas around the principles are always exciting and inspiring because they resonate at like a like a bodily level. The practices then that we ask people to engage in to bring those principles to life. Whew, that's a whole other ask because that's really where the discomfort creeps in and where a leader who traditionally, you know, it was his house and he invited you into that house and he controlled the right. conversation and the agenda. Right. We're now saying, what if we try this structure that invites participation? What if anyone can bring their need? What if the facilitator isn't you? Like, and now we're off to the races, but, but it's tough. It is. It certainly is. I think that also big picture when we talk about the future of work and acquiring new talent, I mean, our talent is selective. You know, there's 
we're in a we're in a very delicate situation now where our companies are saying, well, it's really hard to find talent. Is it though? Or is it because they're just not choosing you? So I wonder. There's lots of studies about the talent gap and I don't want to dismiss that. Absolutely. Sure. There's a talent gap and my humble opinion, there's, there always has been, and there always will be because technology is so quick and moving and, you know, so yeah. we're in a, in a, in a, we're at a very high touch, high speed environment. So it's all, that gap is always going to be there. But yeah. when a company tells me, gosh, you know, like I've got this position that's paying 90, a hundred grand a year and I can't get someone to save my life. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it's more about the company philosophy. And I think that companies now are really kind of shifting gears and saying, okay, it's not them, it's me. You know, I, I really got to look inward and mm-hmm. saying, what can I do to attract the talent? And sometimes, and to your point, you know, these principles, how are we practicing these principles? And, and you mentioned something, I think, in one of your podcasts about he, being human adaptive. Mm-hmm. Is that a principle or is that just a Tell me a little bit more. Is that a principle? Is that a mindset? Or is that, you know, a practice yeah. to be human adaptive? I mean, making organizations more adaptable and more human is really at the core of everything that we do. And it's underneath any principle that we are teaching, any practice that is coming from that principle. So let, let me give you an example. We often talk about, we talk about being more human as being people positive. And what we mean by that is not that we like everyone, not that we're all friends, not that everyone's nice. But what we mean is it's a very theory why of thinking about, theory why way of thinking about the world, which is mm-hmm. human beings want meaning. They are intri- they're intrinsically motivated by contribution and they can in fact change despite what you may believe about them. Okay, so if that's what we mean by people positive or human, then there are principles around that like ha- like authority. Okay, if we believe people want to contribute and can be trusted and can be changed, should we give them some agency over their jobs? Cool. What does that look like in practice? It probably looks like a teller at a bank having a signing authority that they don't have right now. It probably Mm. looks like a cleaner in a hotel having some ability to respond to a guest's need. It probably looks like, you know, you know, you get the point that I'm that I'm making. But, you know, we sort of think of these principle level ideas like being more human and more adaptive as being what undergirds practices that we coach and teach. And then Mm -hmm. the practices that we coach and teach in turn make us more human and more adaptive. Got it. Got it. And I wonder too, if I wonder if, or I would just wonder in general, are we just forgetting about it? I mean, in your work with companies, are we just forgetting that we're working with humans? Or are we just having like this false expectations of what our human capabilities are in a team environment and a company environment? Yeah, I think it's a few things. So one is, I think a lot of companies are still bought into the historical mythology around the ladder and the trappings. And just like you said about that company that says I'm paying $100,000 and nobody wants this job. It's like that is a company that is not paying super close attention to what's going on culturally right now, which is that people are not as interested in just sort of putting blinders on and climbing a ladder through a toxic work environment just to get more. People are, you know, we've been confronted with our own mortality in a very real way over the last couple of years. And, you know, I think that's shifted a lot in terms of the dynamic. But the more deep or, or sort of pernicious answer, I think, to your question is 
we are living and working in systems that were created for an industrial age where mm-hmm. we were yep. making machines and we were treating people like machines. And the whole, it, you know, if I'm trying to make companies human adap- and adaptive, the whole ethos of that time was about control and efficiency, not humanity and adaptivity. And so then what that looks like is how do we get more X with less Y? How do we get this person to work an extra hour for nothing? And in those You know, when that's what the architect of the system was thinking about, even if it was 100 years ago, that shows up. It shows up in systems now. And so on the one hand, I don't think that in in the micro people aren't aware they're dealing with humans, but in the macro, the system is not designed around humanity. Such a good point. Such a good point. Especially we just, you know, we literally just talked about how, you know, our economy has moved so greatly with technology and the speed at which we do things. And you're absolutely, you just hit it right on the head. Like it it resonated with me. I wrote it down. You know, we, our systems were built around the industrial age with efficiencies and with, you know, processes versus with humans. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, gosh, I think it's going to take quite a bit of time to get out of that mindset. I think there's other ways of looking at efficiencies. There's other ways of looking at, productivity. There's other ways of influencing all of that and informing all of that. And we are certainly, and you're right, we were faced with our mortality. And maybe that's why we're really, you know, companies are now seeing and feeling that void in their talent because they are being much more selective. I really appreciate that so much. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. I'm going to shift gears here just a little bit because I want to touch on the new talent. Like I want to shift gears on the employee. How many times do we hear find your passion? And there's lots of dialogue around, well, that's just false. We're setting our (laughs) folks up to fail, Yeah, you know, because you can't find your passion until you've done some stuff and had a few scars. And then you're just like, oh, well, this this is exactly where I want to go, you know? And what did, what does find your passion really mean? So why does that way of thinking you think cause more harm, if you think it does, than good in your view? Yeah, I do think it causes more harm. And I would love to hear your take on this too, because I'm sure, you know, working with and around students, you probably are in a lot of these conversations. I guess to me, there's a few things. One is, it feels like a very privileged take. Not everyone is in a situation where they can pursue their passion. Some people have to work at the Amazon warehouse so that they can pay their rent. Feed their families, yeah. Do I think that Amazon warehouses could be run differently so that they are more engaging and exciting for those workers? I absolutely do. And also, let's like not kid ourselves. It's probably not very many people's passion. So that's my like first caveat is that I just think it's like in some ways a little bit of like a BS privilege take. But more deeply than that, I just I don't think that passion often has tons and tons to do with the content of the job. And what I hear people say is either on one end of the spectrum, like what I love is painting. And it's like, cool. Do you want to paint on commission with customers, deal with a gallery, find your own representation, crank out four paintings a month and be poor? I mean, I'm using that as an extreme example, but like painting is not a job. It is 
a craft and a practice. And, and so I'm like, maybe for many of us, and I was nearly a professional musician, so I have a lot of scar tissue around this. For many of us, turning something that is a creative pursuit and that you have a ton of passion for into your job will ruin it. And I think we overlook that. I think we, you know, the old adage of like, if you love what you do, you'll never, I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's cool. But like, what if instead we really anchored into what do I like doing? What I like doing is being in conversations like this. Okay, is this my passion? Like, is podcasting my passion? No, it's not. But it's part of my job. And it's a part of my job that I would happily do all day for free. So I just think, I think those things get munged together because there are a lot of things that I love about what I do. And I am such an advocate for having a job that you love if you are in the position to to do that. And like, would I say that my passion is that? not Probably not. So I don't know. I am curious to see what you see and hear out there. You know, I hear a lot of it too. It's a lot about what society has kind of shared with us, right? Find your passion. But personally, passion to me is something that ignites you spiritually and fulfills you spiritually. Work and doing what you like to do, right? Like you don't have a problem doing that task. That's a job. To your point, ignites you mentally and it stimulates you mentally. So I think there's two very different tracks here. I got to be honest with you, what I liked, what ignites me perhaps maybe spiritually or fulfills me as a human being, my passion, I would not want that to be my work. Because that to me, your passion should be something that is kind of icing on the cake. I love doing that. I love painting. And it calms me. It provides me harmony between what I need to do that I enjoy doing. By the way, it's a task. I enjoy doing that. That's my job. Into what fulfills me in other ways. It mm. harmonizes, I think, our environments and our existence. I don't, so for me, it's more, I get a little bit too deep, maybe, um, Rodney, but I don't find that it's that passion correlates with work either. I really don't. Yeah. Like I say all the time, I love my job, love my job. I really, really do. I find such pride in it. I have pride in it. I enjoy seeing the results of the work, but is it a passion? No, I have other passions that ignite me differently. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my take on it. You know that I think your take on it just helped me solidify maybe what is the most irritating thing about that whole passion thing to me, which I never thought about before. So thank you for that. I think part of what bugs me is it is such an American industrial age, traditional capitalist mindset to have to turn everything into a job where you make money. It's like, could we just do stuff because it fills us up? Do, do we have to turn everything into a hustle? I don't think we should. Look, if your hustle turns out to be your, you know, your way of paying rent, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not arguing with that. But we do have this orientation, I think, and I, it's a particularly American orientation of like, turn all of it into money. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just think mm-hmm. it's gross. You're absolutely right. I just think it's gross and unnecessary. It's gross. It is. It is kind of gross and unnecessary. Yeah. You know, I think that there's, you know, kind of, it kind of goes into, again, the other phrase of work-life balance. Mm. Is there such a thing? My humble opinion? No, there really isn't. Mm. You never have a balance. You have harmony. You have coexisting. 
you know, and, and maybe that's where like, it gets a little muddy about going back to underscore your point. Yeah. Is can passion, can it lead to, you know, a, a monetizing career? Absolutely. It can. But is that the reality of most of the folks here? No, it's not. And it's like, now what do I do now? I, I have for some, I'm doing a job that I don't necessarily like, but I have to manage everything else in my life. And then I have the other person that says, well, I I like what I do. I really do. So I do so much of it because I like it. It's not really my passion, but I like doing it. And how am I, how, where's the balance? And I'd love to hear your take on this because I don't think we have balance. I think it's just how we integrate. Yeah. So I totally agree with you. I think work-life balance is an antiquated term and I'd like us to get rid of it because I don't really think it serves the people that it's supposed to. My basic take on work-life balance is like a lot of aspects of work and and issues with work and tensions with work. The conversation around work-life balance almost always centers on the individual and like you know, 10 steps to setting better boundaries and like how you can leave at five and blah, 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 blah. And to me, again, this is where organizations have a responsibility to not be applying constant pressure and to not allow the drumbeat of there's always more to do. There's always another rung to to climb. And the successful people here are sacrificing or are suffering or are you know, what, whatever they're doing. And so when individuals say to me, you know, how can I shift this or how can I have healthy boundaries or how can I not work all the time? To me, it's like, how can we make agreements around that with our team or with our boss or whatever so that all of the burden of that isn't on the individual? It's like, I make the team agreement that says, you know, we all set our Slack to do not disturb after 6 p.m. and no one mm-hmm. is expected to respond until 9 rather right. than you being the one who has to sort of muscle through holding that boundary while other people constantly try to infringe upon it. Fair. That's so fair. And simple yet really impactful, right? I like that. Agreements, team agreements and practicing those. I think that we say a lot of it, right? I mean, you and I have heard that. We've all heard it. Right. Oh, you know, make sure you take your vacation time. But, you know, then we request and it's like, ooh, yeah, that's probably not a good time for you to take your vacation, you know, or we've all heard these kind of different little stories or I don't want you working after five, but here's an email when you get to it or, you know, those kinds of things. And I'm not suggesting that everyone's like that, but we've all been in jobs in companies that, that they subscribe to that philosophy. Yeah, Absolutely. We have to be aware of the power dynamic of that, that's saying, oh, you should, if you're a boss, if you have authority over someone's compensation or promotion or the quality of work they get, and you're saying, oh, yeah, you should take that vacation, but you're not insisting on it, or you're not helping to find the time that's possible, then like, how, how serious are you about it, really? I mean, you know, we went as a company at the ready, I don't know, maybe a year ago, we we had historically always had an unlimited vacation policy. And it was like, just take vacation. It's up to you. We're just, we don't have bosses. We're a self-managed company. Do your thing. And what we realized over time was people weren't taking tons of vacation. And so we had to make the vacation policy as a group and consent to as a group that said, this is the minimum vacation we're going to take in a year. Because again, like, 
we just, you know, we have to pay attention to social dynamics and the fact that when you get high achievement people together, you get a rapidly scaling company, you get more work than there are hands to do the work, an ethos emerges that's like, we're doing too much. And so, you know, rather than just hoping that some iconoclast really makes a line in the sand or that some servant leader is like, oh, I'm just generous and I'll insist, let's just let's just all agree on what we think is reasonable and healthy for us. Right, right. And it feeds into the company philosophy of self-care and mental health and, you know, all those other underlying principles that we, that, you know, some, something as, as significant as a vacation has so mm. many other implications. Right. Most recently, I had to provide myself some self-care out of crisis. It was a crisis mm. response. It wasn't a preventative strategy, right? Like, so, so something as yeah. simple as what you're sharing as an example of, hey, like, you know, we offered this, it was unlimited, it just, but it didn't work. We were seeing that the majority of folks are working even harder and they're not breaking. And so, and now we run the risk of, really burning out our key talent and our folks. And then what? Now it becomes a crisis that we have to fix versus something being a little bit more proactive. You know, that's obviously going more into the personnel, but but I think it does feed into the principle. I'm so happy you guys are doing that. Like you recognize that and you shift it accordingly. Yeah. And I'm I'm sorry to hear that you were sort of forced into a self-care situation (laughs) and also- So silly. One of the things that's so sneaky about burnout that I don't think gets talked about enough is that burnout doesn't usually recognize burnout. So usually once we're in it, like once we're redlined and the gas tank is empty, we're not always awesome at being like, you know what? I'm not making great decisions right now. That's right. I think I need a break. Usually what we do instead is double down or doom scroll or give in to our lesser habits. And so it's this bad cycle if we think that the individuals who are in burnout or in crisis have the capacity in that moment to be like, you know what, here's what I need. So good for you that you could. And also, I expect and hope that companies and teams create and consent to those strategies and groups because it's so hard once you're in that situation. Right. It sure is. It sure is. Now, forgive me for this very naive question. The ready, speaking of, you know, all of these things, that we, all these topics, all these items we shared with each other today, how does the ready, or if you can to just define the ready for us, because I feel like we probably should have said that up in the, the front of this conversation and because it would, it would help kind of tee off the dialogue. But I think that your work with the ready really encompasses much of or everything that we've been discussing thus far. Can you share just like just, you know, a quick pitch of what the ready is and and how this all comes full circle for you? Sure, absolutely. So the ready is a change agency. We focus on organizational design and the future of work. And what that looks like in practice is most of us embedding in very small teams, usually duos or trios in companies, big and small, and sometimes nonprofits and sometimes universities to help them change the way that they work. And what we mean when we say change the way you work is really the how. So most traditional consulting and external help is really about the what. So, you know, the rise of sort of the strategy consultants, the people who are going to tell you what you should do or what you should acquire or who you should hire or what your org chart should look like. We don't do any of that. 
Our work is to be like, you know, how do you create your strategy? How do you steer your strategy? How do you hold your meetings? How do you hire? How do you compensate? What are your practices around work? In that domain, we are we are very opinionated about what those practices are. And we're always experimenting on ourselves to push the envelope because the truth is when you are doing future of work, there isn't best practice because self-management as a way of working and being isn't something that is in the mainstream. You know, there aren't thousands of companies that are like, well, this is how you deal with budgeting, or this is how you deal with Jedi, or this is how you deal with strategy. So we've got ideas and practices that we're teaching and coaching all the time in companies, large and small, but really our own company is our best laboratory for, you know, what's next. Like, we've got this way of doing structure work. What are, what, what do we not love about it? And what could we try instead? For organizations listening, what should be their first step? you think, in creating a better work environment for their employees and making sure that, you know, they've got the hows in place? What would be your advice for them? Yeah. So even if you have no aspirations around becoming self-managed or even becoming more human-centered, for any organization out there in the world, you can get a group of people together who you really share work with. This should be a team where there is some kind of interdependence. Most of us are working on a team like that. And just start with a pile of sticky notes or a mural or mirror board of sticky notes and asking the question, what is stopping each of you from doing the best work of your life? And see what shakes out of that. And what you might find is... There's some low-hanging fruit there. What you might find is that there there's some signal of stuff going on inside the organization that needs tending to. And once you get the vibe, once there is a sense and you'll probably notice some patterns and you should have some discussion as a group, not as a leader being like, you tell me and then I'll go fix it. But as a group of what's holding us back, the next question is, what could we try? And what I want to see in what could we try is not a plan. It's not research. It's not a deep dive into what other people do are doing. It's in this room right now. What ideas do we have for what we could try? And I have seen those first experiments be absolutely profound and transformative. And the only, you know, my only guidance or guideline around experiments is pick something small Pick something where within about eight weeks, you can learn whether it's having an impact. It doesn't have to succeed or fail, but you'll be able to notice something. And pick something that is in your or your team's locus of control. So don't say, you know, we don't like, <laughs> you know, we're the marketing team and we don't like compensation at our company. Like, don't do that. You're not, you don't die on that hill because you'll never make it. But pick something that you can really control. It might be something as simple as we collectively agree that from 9 to noon on Fridays, we're blocking our calendars to do real work and not be in meetings. It could be anything. It could be something so stupid. I once had a team say that they wanted to, um, it was a facilities team, and they were tired of people complaining about snacks in the vending machines. And the experiment they ran was healthy snacks for eight weeks. It 
completely changed how that team was seen, how they felt about themselves. It was like the you never know when you like drop a stone in a pond that is a complex organization, what the ripples are going to be. So what's holding you back from doing the best work of your life? What could we try? And then just see what happens. I love that. I thought that was so great. That was so great. I'd learned. Thanks. I learned a little nugget just talking to you. So thank you. <laughs> thank awesome. you. This, I tell you what, this has been such a great conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. And I really hope I get to talk to you again, Rodney. I know you're an incredibly busy person. You've got lots of stuff going on out there and <laughs> such great work. And I honor you and your work. It's amazing what the ready is doing. I mean, your podcast is super great. I, and I'd like to close really with sharing how we could find you. If our listener wants to find you, where's the best place for them to find you? Sure. Thanks for asking. So our podcast is Brave New Work. You can find it anywhere your podcasts are sold or downloadable. Uh, and um, we did make an episode uh, toward the end of last year called Brave New Work 101. That might be a nice place to start if you've never heard of me or us or anything that we just talked about for the last little while. I'm on Twitter at Rodney Evans 919, which is a North Carolina area code that I don't actually have. And I'm happy to accept LinkedIn requests. Um, I do post there from time to time as well. Fantastic. You've been great. Thank you, Rodney, so much. would love to have you back. And um, for our listeners, we'll be sure to include that in our show notes. Thanks so much for having me. This was an absolute delight. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you can easily get new episodes every Tuesday. You can reach out to us by clicking on the website link below in the show notes to collaborate, partner, or just chat about all things Future of Work. We'd love to connect with you. All of us here at the Future of Work and Pasadena City College wish you safety and wellness.